Hey, everybody. Welcome to Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Today, we are taking the discarded metal junkyard of our thoughts and ideas and hopefully turning them into something, I don't know, should I say it, human? Anyway, today we are talking about Brad Bird's 1999 masterpiece. Yeah, I said that. The Iron Giant. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor here at Amherst Presbyterian Church in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. And I'm Adam, and I teach preaching and worship at Andover Newton Theological School in Boston, and I do have a soul. And if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We invite guests to the show who pick movies for us to watch. We watch them from our vantage as ministers, as theologians, as people who love movies. And then we gather for a conversation with our guest. This week, our guest M.T. Davila has asked us to go watch The Iron Giant, so we've done it. And in our first segment of the show, Justification by Faith, we're going to ask what The Iron Giant has to do with life and ministry, theology, and the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with The Iron Giant for this coming lectionary Sunday, which will be October 16th, the 24th Sunday in Ordinary Time. And in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're reading, watching, or following. But before we get too far down the line, we want to introduce our special guest for today's show. M.T. Davila is the Associate Professor of Christian Ethics at Andover Newton, so she's just down the hall from you, Adam. She's literally uh, next door, across Uh, the hall. M.T. specializes in Catholic social teaching and liberation theology and social justice, and we are so thrilled to have her with us today. M.T., welcome to the show. Hi, and thank you for having me. I believe the script here says that I'm supposed to say that being in this show is the greatest event of my professional faith and life journey. And so I, I wholeheartedly agree with that sentiment. I, I didn't write that part. Adam, did you write that part? I don't know where uh, that came I'm not, from. No, I didn't write that. All right. The Iron Giant took a long time coming to the theaters and a very short time disappearing from them. It started as a 1968 novel called The Iron Man, which later got retitled to avoid getting sued, the plot of which kind of only barely resembles what shows up on screen. In the 1980s, Pete Townsend of The Who decided that this book was going to be the source material for his next rock movie, which unfortunately does not exist. I would love to see that. I also think it would be terrible. In the end, of course, we have Brad Bird's version, in which a huge iron robot falls from space outside a 1950s town on the east coast of Maine and befriends a young boy while terrifying the already terrified Cold War culture on every side. The movie has really amazing things to say about cultures of fear and violence and something about beating swords into plowshares, perhaps. But then it kind of died on release and has come back only gradually, actually Comedy Central bought the rights to this movie and started marathoning it on Thanksgiving Day. So maybe people get to this one kind of like I got to It's a Wonderful Life because it was there and unavoidable during holiday season. But I hadn't watched this in years, and so I was glad for the chance to revisit it. It was even more gorgeous and touching than I remembered. But even so, MT, I still need you to justify why we watched it. What does The Iron Giant have to do with the work of ministry in the church? Well, for me, a lot of movies and books work with the trope um, and the idea of uh, how do we form morally when we're born? What is that process by which we start learning what is good or bad or evil or holy or um, rightness and wrong? Um, 
And especially when, when there's nothing there to begin with. And the Iron Giant um, asked that question. So how is a seemingly sentient being, even though this is a robot, uh, how is that shaped morally? What makes up his free will? Uh, is there a free will in there that, that gets shaped by the environment or gets shaped by an inner light or an inner um, message or, or law that, that they have? Is he able to freely choose good or bad? And I, I keep referring to he as the robot, but I think that, that he is referenced as he in the movie. Um, are we, you or I, you know, uh, able to choose good, uh, good or bad? Or is science telling us that there's something else going on? So I really love how children's movies struggle with these kinds of questions of moral formation. And when they do it well, like I think this case does, it can be a great source of theological and ethical reflection for people across the generations. So in discussing this movie, um, it, its setting is 1957 Maine, uh, and it's this perfect little town. Um, but 1957, to me, from my vantage point in 2016, tells me a few things, right? So what do we know? We know it's 10 years after the end of World War II, four years after the Korean War, with the Vietnam War already in the horizon, um, the, in the midst of the Cold War, but leading up to the Cuban Missile Crisis. So you have these videos of uh, nuclear uh, safety and, and duck and cover uh, and ways to keep safe from a nuclear attack. Um, and so other things that we knew in 1957, and by, by we knew, I mean things that were what were forming us in our consciousness. In, in the USA, in 1957, we knew that we were the good guys. And we knew that beyond any doubt. That was sort of our, our, our narrative um, coming out of World War II and into the Cold War. Um, and we knew that the Soviets and all their satellite states were the enemies. They were not good guys. They had chosen the wrong path. They were communists. They, they had different ideologies. And they were uh, a threat. Um, we knew our, who our enemies were. And we knew that they had to be kept at bay. So that, that meant that we were going to invest heavily in the military, that we were going to um, have a sort of this def national defense mentality that we needed to keep others at bay. But if for some reason these enemies crossed the line, we knew we had the power, the military power, to take them down, and that it was our moral duty to do so because coming out of World War II and coming out into the, coming into the Cold War, we sort of made these assumptions that democratic capitalism um, was not just the better of the two sides, but also the one that followed God and wasn't atheistic, whereas Soviet, um, the USSR and Russia were not just communists, but also atheists and didn't believe in God. And so um, it was a narrative that really dominated how we were formed in, during those years. So this is life in stark black and white. There's no gray areas here. Um, now, in hindsight, we look back and we know that that, that, that was at the edge of, a, of, a really, um, of some really important and significant years in our nation's history where that black and white world was going to disintegrate real soon. Um, it was a very limited view um, of life in, the, in this country because it's not including um, African-American life and Martin Luther King, who was already being very active at the time, and then obviously uh, the civil rights movement that was in its heyday. Um, and secondly, uh, it, this clear-cut good-bad way of looking at the world, um, both at home and abroad, 
is, was going to come to a crashing halt through the Vietnam War and then just looking at, into the 60s at what globally it meant, what this Cold War meant and what these wars of proxy meant. So I mentioned this whole historical situatedness of the movie because um, it influenced how we thought about suffering and salvation, the morality of nations, mm -hmm. um, the justification of the person, and the justification of the nation as we had come to understand it and its citizens. Um, and we know this uh, because at the time we get Reinhold Niebuhr writing tons of material about this particular, the theological import of this particular time in U.S. history, beginning with the irony of American history in 1952. We get Christian realism and political problems in 1953. And then the collection of essays, Love and Justice, um, 1957, which really gets to the heart of what the Cold War means um, to the Christian mind. Um, so for me, The Iron Giant is the animated film that um, should accompany <laughs> uh, reading the works of Reinhold Niebuhr uh, for these particular years. And, and I would throw in Moral Man and Immoral Society and also The Nature and Destiny of Man in there as well, because it's, it does speak to that anxiety that individuals handle one way, that anxiety, existential anxiety, that individuals handle one way, what societies and, and groups are going to handle a different way, as we see in the movie. One of my favorite parts of this film is when they are uh, at the reservoir or the lake where the uh, giant does the big cannonball into into the lake, and you see uh, you you see the kind of beatnik father figure lounging on the side, and he's reading a newspaper whose headline is "Disaster Looms as Catastrophe Nears," <laughs> which is just this kind of amazingly vague and yet totally accurate uh, headline to get at what it is to live in this kind of generalized culture of fear that I think you really rightly identify in that um, in that kind of height of Cold War 50s America. But it it, it seems like it's, it's not just there. And so part of my question to you is, I mean, Bradbird loves these kind of space age nostalgia things. I mean, he does it with um, he does it with The Incredibles. He did it with perhaps less efficacy with Tomorrowland. Uh, but I'm not sure it's entirely just nostalgia it seems like he's trying to do something contemporary and modern too so what's the you know is this film just to accompany a kind of historical treatments of Niebuhr and that era of American exceptionalism or does it have something to say to us too in 2016? I think um The movie within Brad Bird's corpus of, of those kinds of movies, so you mentioned Tomorrowland, The Incredibles, I'll add in Ratatouille, mm -hmm. um, are movies about becoming. Um, and they're movies about becoming within brokenness. And so in that sense, yes, there's this kind of nostalgia, 1950s no Cold War nostalgia film, uh, uh, film and, and, and bringing us to that period, but what, what really gets pointed out to me is um, this primordial being, the iron giant that's learning good and bad, and it's learning what is it, what is it that becomes, what makes you a hero, right? We see him uh, looking at, at um, Hogarth's uh, comic books and seeing who is a hero in the comic books and who is a, a superhero, who is a, a, a villain, uh, and what kind of choices these two beings make. Um, he's doing all that within... Uh, a brokenness. What is the brokenness? Is that 
the Iron Giant himself has the potential for evil already in him. So we don't know where this Iron Giant came from. We don't know if it's a, 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 from outer space or if it's from another nation. Uh, it could be Russian. And so that this, these are some of the discussions in the towns, among the townspeople and among the military establishment. Um, but what we do know is that he has the potential to be a weapon. And that, um, that is an inner brokenness already there that we, that, that even at our most basic, we have to choose good and evil when we have an innate ability to harm. Um, just like we have an innate ability to, to love and, and that we do that within the broken political brokenness. We do that within economic brokenness. We do that within, you know, in the Incredibles is the case. We do that within the brokenness of, of a family that has to grow up and a family that has to figure out what, what does love mean when, when, um, the sort of the, that spark of, uh, of newlyweds is gone. Um, in Ratatouille, we have to figure out that how to become, um, when all our ambitions say, um, run up against the reality of who we are, which in the case, it's a, it's a rat trying to become a cook. Um, so that, that's where I'm seeing this. It's, I'm seeing this as a movie that is saying, how do we choose, how do we make choices and does free will even matter um, in the context of becoming something uh, within brokenness? So... Adam, let me know how this is resonating with you. I mean, is this a film that really uh, gets to some kind of deep American sense of um, self-expression and uh, self-becoming? Or is there are there greater forces at work here? And how do you think about that in the context of theology and the church? Well, let me first begin by saying I, I love the idea that theologians should have like corresponding animated films. <laughs> like, I think that's just another, another topic for a podcast at some point, which is like, uh, you know, what is like Gutierrez's, uh, you know, cor corresponding film and, you know, what is, you know, Mary Daly's corresponding film and what is like, I mean, so I, I'd love to have that conversation at a later date. I think for me, the iron giant, um, is showing you two particular sides of of America at a particular time. I think the 1950s is uh, a time of great anxiety and fear, and that is uh, mostly shows up in the character of Mansley, the FBI or CIA agent who comes to uh, investigate this, you know, the supernatural, the paranormal. Uh, it seems kind of like proto David Duchovny. I mean, there's a little is. bit, there's a lot of yeah. X-Files in that guy. Yeah, and then there's the second part, which is the creative class of the United States. And I think Brad Bird, from the very beginning, has always had a deep love for those people who are the dreamers and the thinkers and the, the people who are willing to think outside the box. And you see that both in Hogarth, um, but m mainly in this beatnik Dean, who is trying to take this trash and make it into art. Um, and there's this point in the, in the movie where Dean stands up for the sailor who saw the iron giant at sea and he ends up saying something like if we don't stand up for the kooks who will and to me it, it sort of spoke to the way that this movie has uh, a preferential option for the for the weird uh, <laughs> and for the you know the queer and the kook the um and in some ways as i look at the movie um the iron giant is the kook 
um, he doesn't want to be a weapon, even though he's like a really amazing weapon. He wants to do something else. And he is a very strange character because he all he does is like he just wants to like eat metal and like do cannonballs into lakes. Um, he doesn't seem to have any particular agenda for being here. Um, and that makes him a very strange hero and that makes him a very strange villain. And those particular uh, types um, don't overlay on him well until the end of the movie where he's forced to be both. Um, I like the middle part of this movie so much in part because you see that the Iron Giant in relationship with Hogarth gets to just be without the world overlaying some sort of identity onto him. And um, whether or not that state is innocent or whether or not it is innocent with some sort of latent violence at the center of it, um, I think what's interesting about it is that at the center of this is this relationship between this boy and this giant. And Dean, at some point, says that that thing, it, and Hogarth corrects him and says, no, it's a he. And it's this beautiful moment where Hogarth um, imparts subjectivity to the giant. It gives, he, he sees the giant as having some identity. It's forming, it is still figuring out what a soul is and what, uh, you know, what it means to live in the world. And yet Hogarth is willing to recognize that this thing is a being in and of itself. And that requires some sort of um, honor um, recognizing its own dignity, even though it may not know what it is or what it's becoming. And so, you know, I'm just, I'm so taken by this movie and, um, and the way that um, it just, it allows the giant to just be weird. Well, weird for a while, but then as you kind of point out, I mean, it's, it is also pushed eventually towards this kind of basic dichotomy. Like they're sitting in the house looking at the comic books and you can either be Superman or Atamo who destroys the world. You kind of, and, and it seems like over the course of time, the film pushes the giant that he's going to have to be one of those or the other. I mean, yeah. And I think Matt, I think that honors the binary of the time. Mm. You were one of the other. I mean, the cold war did not allow for any gray areas when it came to moral imagination mm. um, and, and, and to its own fault. Um, so we were running up against uh, sustaining not just our nation under fear, but, but globally, uh, a, a, a regime of fear that in fact later came to be um, diagnosed by ethicists and, and sociologists um, as being unethical, you know, that, that not, it wasn't just that firing a nuclear weapon would have been unethical, but that, in fact, the culture of fear that it imposed on entire populations was unethical and was a violation of human dignity. And, but it was part of that binary of black and white, of choose your side, and, and one is evil and one is heroic, uh, and, and you have to make a choice. So I'm trying to picture, like, using this film in... Um like a high school or junior high Sunday school class. And maybe you wouldn't do that at all, but let's just assume that you would for a second. And if, if you were, would, were you, would you use it to talk about 
um, an era and the, the consequences and baggage of that era and the theological consequences of it? Or would you use it in this sense of helping young people actually figure out their own theological and ethical path? I mean, or is that too, or is it too reductive to be helpful for us in that way um, as we look at it now? If I, you know, the one moment for me that tells me how this would work well with a, a youth group or even children is when the Iron Giant sees the deer getting shot mm. and killed. Mm -hmm. And sort of that process of the Iron Giant understanding um, what a weapon is, what, a, what that it kills, that it takes life away and that that's not good. And then the conversation ensues that, that we all die. Um, everything that, that exists uh, fades away, uh, but that's not necessarily bad. So how do we, why was Hogarth so intent on making this difference um, to the giant that um, we all fade away, we will all die, but in fact, taking that life away, taking it violently is not okay. Um, how, does, how do we establish that finessing of life and death for, for different age groups? Um, and how do you discuss that morally for different age groups? And the sense that the Iron Giant had to make of it and of his own eventual demise, if that was a possibility. You know, he asked, will I die? Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, how, it, Hogarth answers it one way. He says, uh, you have feelings and feelings might mean that you have a soul. And my mother says, only good things have souls and those things last forever, the soul. So it, he's trying to answer in his own way. So I think this would be really key for a conversation with with uh, youth and children um, regarding this issue. And then, you know, even later on, um, not so much the, the, the military, but uh, watching the film again for this particular podcast, the one line that struck me is um, for the Iron Giant to have to say, I am not a gun. And not just to say it as in, okay, I've chosen my path, these tools that I have, uh, which we all have tools, right? Every creature has a tool has, um, in their being and in their body and materially. So these tools that I have don't define me and I am not a gun. But I actually kept asking, do we as a nation right now, 2016, need to say this to ourselves? I am not a gun. You know, we had... Um, uh, there's a meme going around, and it's been going around for a while. It says, look, when, when you have a shooting in a school take the life of 20 children and your government doesn't do anything about it and people aren't in the streets, then what, what is that for a national identity? What does that mean? So when he says, I am not a gun, in 1957, according to this film, it's something that has to be repeated again and again. It's a question or a statement that has to be considered again and again. And it's, it's a good question to raise up with, with youth groups and other sorts of Sunday classes. I, I think especially, too, um, that statement can be read a couple of different ways um, as, a, as a choice that the Iron Giant makes, right? I am not a gun. I, I will not be the, the, uh, the violent tool in the hands of the powerful. I think it's also uh, something that... Um, uh, that's designed to alleviate the fears of the of the people who are afraid of the giant too, right? Which is sure. to say, like, look, I'm not a gun. Like, I I don't want to do you harm. And 
Um, and then also there's this idea that um, that I am not a gun is also a way to say, um, don't kill me. <laughs> don't use your guns on me. And, and and each of those ways of thinking about I'm not a gun, I think, are especially pertinent in our life today, Matt, especially as we look at um, the role of police brutality in this world, where the color of someone's skin makes them an immediate threat to a group of people. And they're putting their hands up and basically saying, I am not a gun. I'm not, I'm not here to do you harm. I'm not here to do you violence. But like, uh, like the people in the movie, they can't see past the anxiety and they can't see past the fear uh, enough to listen and take the subjectivity of this thing, of the giant in the movie, and of actual human beings in real life, uh, can't listen to them long enough to recognize that maybe they're anything but a gun. So I don't want to let us finish up with this movie, or at least even with this conversation, before talking a little bit about the ending. And I, um, I'm going to spoil the heck out of it here if y'all haven't uh, watched it recently. MT, you already talked a little bit about where the film gets into questions of death and the soul of the Iron Giant and how the the soul, in, in Hogarth's mother's language, the soul doesn't get destroyed even if the body is destroyed. We kind of hint at something vaguely spiritual, but when we get to the last 10-15 minutes of this movie, we get something that feels much more explicitly resurrection-y, uh, for lack of a better adjective. I wouldn't go so far as to call this a Christian film in any sense, um, but there's nonetheless the case that the Iron Giant uh, more or less dies for the sins of the people in that universe, and then uh, after death, we have this sequence where much later on, the one remaining part from the Iron Giant comes to, um, is, is delivered to Hogarth and starts to kind of animate itself because it's going to go uh, heal itself along with the other parts. And then at the epilogue, we move to Iceland and see all the pieces coming back together and the Iron Giant's eyes turn on um, because he is back from the dead. I have to say personally that I found that a little overplayed. Um, I would have been perfectly happy with a little part that shows up in Hogarth's room and lights up to say there's something out there and then cut to black. And I, I kind of want to hear from you all um, given the scope of the film, how does, does the ending work for you? And was it too much or prove me wrong? Um, how, how did it sit? Well, we needed the section in Iceland because we needed some sort of footage to cover Michael Kamen's music. Um, <laughs> and, and, okay. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, which is just one of the fantastic things about this movie. It's not just illustration, it's not just a story, but, but wow, the music. Um, and it just grabs you and takes you into a Sunday experience, right? Sure. And you, you, you use the word resurrection. It doesn't necessarily have to be resurrection, but it, for me, it's like, okay, this is a, if I'm going to continue with the idea that this movie is about becoming in a broken world and becoming in a way that, that might in some way be uh, either Christic or might be uh, evangelical, you know, gospel-like, then where is my Sunday? You know, can I have a Sunday in a broken world? Can I have a Sunday during the Cold War? And, um, and what this is saying is that, that yes, there is, it's for this boy, there is this Sunday um, for, uh, 
for the Iron Giant, there might be a Sunday, and and that that it it is part and parcel of of being and becoming that it has to be a company. There's one more piece that I wanted to mention as well, and that is the relationship bet between the two. So when we think about being and becoming morally, um, the conversation we've had so far, and we've regard we've talked about the Iron Giant and the Iron Giant, and his. Uh, whether he has free will and whether there's some choices that he's making, moral choices, it's being spoken of in very individualistic terms. But the fact is that um, moral identity is evoked. So Hogarth evokes in his relationship with the Iron Giant a moral response. There are two hearts or two, you know, if there's a heart to this robot, there are two beating things whether their hearts or not, that are beating to the tune of friendship, that are beating to the tune of justice, that are beating to the tune of imagination and possibility, and they evoke in each other a moral response. And that is completely radically against the black and white of the Cold War and the black and white of a lot of the more ethical discussions that we have today in the public square. Um, so it's, I think it's important to note that this Sunday moment is for both of them. Um, and, it, and, it's, uh, and then you get evoked, you know, whether it's the music, whether it's the, the, the eyes lighting up in, in ice line of the head of the giant, it, it then reaches into you uh, and, and evokes something as well. And, and I just wanted to note that, that there, there's a, a, a community here in which there is this moral formation happening. It's not just this individual um, uh, process. It, it, it evoked something for me, or at least it, it was it was definitely raining on my face at the end of that movie a little bit last night. Uh, Adam, does, did it work for you? You know, by the end it did, um, if only because uh, I like to think that the Iron Giant is going to go and find some other Icelandic kid and, like, hang out with him and spend a little time. It It just felt like there was an opportunity for this transformative relationship to... Uh, to keep going and 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 that gave me some some larger hope I, I like mt i think that the relationship of, of hogarth and the iron giant is the sort of beating heart of the movie uh it it's the opportunity for those two to teach each other to just be in friendship while the rest of the world is uh is thinking only in utilitarian terms about how to use this giant or how to destroy this giant because it becomes a threat. Hogarth is the only one who sort of thinks about even even Dean thinks about it in utilitarian terms. He like puts the giant to use in like hanging cars for his own art. Sure. And Hogarth is the only one who actually treats the Iron Giant as its own being who deserves some manner of mutuality and alterity. And so I like the idea that the Iron Giant might have an, another opportunity to do that, if only because it seems like such a brief time period. I, I mean, I think I was trying to do the time period in my head. I think the movie happens over th four days. Something like that, yeah. That it, um, But it's within those four days that you can see um, a group of people would be changed in, in in a positive way by seeing the life-giving love that's born of relationship. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, yeah, it, it feels 
um, a little Disney-fied, uh, though this is a Warner Brothers film. But I, I was willing to concede it to them, if only because I thought, like, you know, the first 89 minutes of the movie are so strong. All right, Adam and MT both. Let's move on to preaching a little bit. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir. So we're going to look at the lectionary passages for this coming Sunday, which is year C, the 24th Sunday of Ordinary Time, October 16th. It's a pretty meaty Sunday for preachers. We have the New Covenant language in Jeremiah 31. We have Jacob wrestling with the Lord and Peniel. We have Second Timothy on the utility of Scripture. And then this kind of odd Luke parable about the unjust judge along with a couple of psalms, of course, like Psalm 121. MT, as you look at these passages, what strikes you as kind of possible points of connection for next Sunday morning? I, you know what? Uh, in, uh, in Jeremiah, um, we, we have God telling the people, you know, I will write the law in their hearts. This is not going to be like the Old Covenant. This is going to be something that you will carry within you. And uh, for me, it evokes, again, um, that sense in the Iron Giant, what I had mentioned, that that it is another heart, that it's hearts that speak to each other, that bring out um, good, that bring out uh, morally good choices, and um, and that we will have that law written in our hearts. So it's it's it may be cloud, it may be veiled by um, systems, especially when we when we look at the movie, um, the prison industrial complex, and God knows, uh, you know, Jeremiah went through ways in which the system was clouding that message, uh, clouding the message that God was calling the people of Israel to be uh, a separate people, to be um, God's people and for God to be uh, Yahweh, to be their God. And so um, there's sort of this echo here that says if, if we understand deeply within us, we will know that this is written in our hearts um, regardless of what the system tells us. What about you, Adam? As you look at the lectionary passages, what stands out to you? I'd like to look at the Genesis passage, which uh, I, I think is uh, such a formative passage, at least in my life, and uh, in a rich one, and shows up within um, within theologies and uh, and within so many pe- people's lives. Uh, central to the heart of the Jacob story is the question, what does it mean to believe that you're the inheritor of a promise? Uh, The Iron Giant calls into question American exceptionalism in a very real way. And it's a a quite political movie, as MT has noted. Um, Similarly, deep in Jacob's bones is this fear and anxiety that he is not actually God's beloved. Even though throughout his entire life, He's been told over and over again, you are the beloved of God. You are the inheritor of a promise. You will be blessed. Um, He gains no security from this promise. And this promise was said to him in his crib by his mother. And then God shows it to him and and gives him this vision of seeing the the upper heavens opened. But still, there's, there's no security. And so Jacob becomes smart and conniving and by all intents and purposes, becomes very capable at what he's doing. By the time he meets God at the river Jabbok, he has, you know, uh, wives and and cattle and kids, but then he sends them all across the river. For all of his striving, he finds no security in this world. Uh, 
And in some ways, the fight with the angel is just more of the same. He feels like he's able to work his way into security if he fights this angel well enough, if he fights hard enough, if he's strong enough, then maybe he'll finally deserve this blessing. I think America at its worst also comes to believe its own promise is only won by fighting for it. Um, and this, and to use a Niburian phrase, is, is a demonic lie. Um, capability is not connected to blessing. And no amount of conniving or force can wrest the blessing of, from God's hand. Um, not far from where I sit right now, John Winthrop envisioned our country as a city on a hill, as a beacon of blessing for the world. And to the extent that we've tried to live into that blessing, we have failed because like Jacob, we have thought that it required lying and conniving and oppressing and gathering what we didn't sow in order to receive that blessing. Currently, people of color in this country are still fighting to be an inheritor of the promise. And they're still fighting for some share of the blessing that we say we have, but we've never really felt. At one point in Iron Giant, Kent Mansley says, they want what we have. But what do we have? And as Jacob is wrestling this angel on the river Jabbok, as his family and property is across the river, what exactly does he have at that point? He doesn't have anything. Uh, and what I'm heartened by and what gives me hope and what I see at the heart of this movie uh, as... Um, as the answer to all of the conniving um, is something that MT alluded to earlier, which is um, friendship. Um, the relationship between the Iron Giant and Hogarth, like all relationship, uh, is fun, it's life-giving, it's a little dangerous, and, but ultimately it's good um, because the relationship exists for itself, not for means outside of itself. So no matter what the Iron Giant can do, Hogarth just seems to like him. And Hogarth likes him in the way that kids easily just take a shine to things, and they just like them. Um, and Hogarth doesn't know enough to think that like the rest of the adults in the movie, he has to wrestle for this blessing. He just lives into the relationship. Um, and likewise, this weapon, this Iron Giant, becomes a subject because no one is asking him to be anything but one. Uh, no one's asking him to kill. No one's asking him to take a side to inflict violence. Hogarth is, just wants to be his friend. Um, at the end of the passage, Jacob has to give up. And that's ultimately what allows him to see that the blessing was his all along. Um, when we strive for it, we never see it. By giving up, by laying down our weapons, by um, trying... Uh, to, to abandon all of the ways that we've conspired to take the blessing by force, we might see that the empty hands that we have um, are the prerequisite for blessing to begin with. That's interesting that, that you put it that way, Anna, and, um, because in the, Luke, in the Lucan passage, um, one of the last lines after the, the uh, pericope of the judge and the, and the widow and will not God grant what uh, what you ask when you ask it persistently, um, 
one of the things that is asked, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And I go back to some of what we were talking about in the beginning, which was, um, where is the faith of the people in this town? It's in the military-industrial complex. If, if God comes down on us today, if Jesus comes down and asks, where is your faith? Um, is it in an electoral process that's a, a three-ring circus right now or a two-ring circus? Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's a deep question about uh, periodically asking ourselves, where, do we, where are we putting our faith as a nation? Um, and it echoes what you said, Adam, but I, I, I feel very deeply that um, other than that relationship between Hogarth and the Iron Giant, um, that for most of the town, the faith is in the military. And what's interesting with the, 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 the figure of the general is his look of absolute horror, not so much at the fact that they're going to make a decision to use a nuclear weapon, but his look of absolute horror when he figures out that this is not working out that this mm -hmm. faith in the military, that this faith in the military-industrial complex, in fact, is not going to solve the problem, which at that point, they thought the military could solve every problem. So um, that, that, that question of when the Son of Man comes, what kind of faith is he going to find uh, in the nation is, is really an important question. And I think there's some interesting things in the movie to grab from for this. Yeah, and it, and it com contrasts that with what is presented as a pretty uh, sterile depiction of kind of organized religion in the film, which comes across in the the prayer before the dinner time, um, when the the son is trying to offer up a prayer that is basically mocked. Uh, he's praying and giving directions to the Iron Giant, unbeknownst to his mother in the background as well, and is not really treated as any kind of um, in any kind of corporate faith in contrast to the faith that they have in arms and strength, as you wisely and um, justly pointed out. Uh, I want to put in one quick plug for um, a way to think about this in connection with Second Timothy, which is uh, to circle back really quickly again to the, the moral formation of the comic books on the floor. Um, Second Timothy talks about as kind of famously here, the scripture that is useful for training in righteousness. Uh, and I think if, in a totally different sermon, if you wanted to talk about uh, a biblical theology of uh, ethical formation and what it means to talk about the Bible as, as a source for us in trying to figure out what it is to do the good um, and contrast that with the kind of other sites in our culture that we use to figure out what good is and how we learn it that you would have in display just in that little moment of the film a pretty interesting um a pretty interesting contrast uh not to say that um comic books can't be sites for moral formation lord knows i read enough of them well i don't know if we figured all this out but i do know that it's time for us to move on unfortunately that means saying goodbye to mt mt thank you again so much for taking the time to be with us my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. All right. Now it is time for our last segment. This one is called Postludes, and it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So, Adam, what's your postlude for the week? 
I want to talk about an article that came out in The New Yorker sometime back called The Art of Conversation. It's a profile of this curator named Hans Ulrich Obrist, who is a curator at The Serpentine, which is a gallery in London. In London. Um, it's, he's a strange man who, uh, who is at once a curator of a gallery, but also spends all of his weekends traveling around the world looking at contemporary art in different parts of the world. Uh, this has made him a, a very important person in the art world, uh, for good or for ill. But what struck me about it is the sort of doggedness with which he is trying to understand what's going on and make connections across the art world. And I was having a conversation recently with another minister friend, and we were talking about the ways in which the idea that ministry is a curatorial art is being thrown about uh, quite a bit nowadays. Mm. And to some extent, I think that that's right. To others extent, to another extent, I don't think we actually know what that means. And I think this uh, this piece on Olbrist is would be a really good beginning of a conversation to talk about what does it mean to be a curator. And it's more than just picking art and figuring out where to put it. It is about community building. It's about figuring out ways to connect people across um uh, boundaries. It's a way to figure out how can we take the gifts of one person and figure out how they might play against the gifts of another person. Um, and that requires the types of people who are going to do ministry across boundaries. And I, I think that in this new church age, I'm really looking forward to the type of minister who doesn't necessarily have a church but whose sole purpose and job is trying to connect churches, trying to connect other creative ministers to each other's work so that they might actually work together and create something new that, um, that sees something built that's more than the sum of their own gifts. And so uh, it was an inspiring beginning to begin uh, to think about what does it mean for uh, ministry to be a curatorial art. So that's what I got, Matt. What about you? So I'm in a slightly more schlocky mood today. Uh, I'm kind of I want to talk about the uh, long rumored death of the studio album and how it seems not to be dead, which makes me super happy. Uh, out as we were recording this right now, um, newly out is the third studio album from Bon Iver, which is a, a band I was been obsessed with for a long time. Uh, the uh, album because. Justin Vernon, the lead guy behind Bon Iver, is, is a kind of a, a, a kooky dude. Speaking of kooky dudes, uh, the album is full of track names like uh, 666 space upside down T uh, or uh, 29 space hashtag Strafford space capital APTS or uh, 22 space open parentheses over space soon close parentheses except the O's and soon are replaced by infinity signs. Uh, this strikes me as being the kind of track listing that you put together if you just don't care at all about trying to make singles or be on charts or really care about single play whatsoever. Like, there's no music video that, that is going to make any kind of headway 
he actually released a couple of these tracks early with videos on YouTube. But nonetheless, I would submit that if your track names are basically uncommunicable, that there's no way for a single to stand alone. You're talking about the work of a whole album. And there was a time when I thought that albums would be dead because everyone was um, getting so much music consumption off of individual YouTube videos or buying single tracks on iTunes. And I don't know, this is something that, you know, this is one of those death spirals that is rumored every generation and never actually happened. But I've just been thinking about it a little bit in the context of putting together Sunday morning worship and what it is to think about uh, the individual pieces of worship versus the act of the whole. And one of the things I like about albums, and I regularly listen to albums all the way through, it's pretty rare that I go back to music that I love without just putting on the album from the start and listening to it through. Uh, one of the things I love is that those pieces comment on each other and they work towards a whole together. And in the best case scenarios, there's something greater than the sum of its parts. Uh, maybe that's our common theme. And so, uh, and I think that's also true in the best case for worship. We one of the things we talk about in my church sometimes is trying to figure out how to get our worship services online, or trying to get them uh, on the radio or to our homebound members. And part of our struggle here is technology in the sanctuary for recording. But part of it is also like, what would you, what what would you give? Because some of the pieces of the worship service are now kind of rights protected. We can't do a podcast where we include a bunch of worship music that's otherwise copywritten. And then, so you're going to excise out like some liturgical prayers and a sermon or something like it, except that I actually think pretty, pretty seriously about the hymn that's going to go after the sermon, because I feel like the hymn that follows the sermon is one of the ways in which the congregation is asked to internalize and revocalize some of the key themes that are in that sermon. And if you separate them, then you lose something. So uh, maybe it makes me an old fuddy-duddy today, but I'm kind of happy for the persistence of the album, and it's helping me think about um, forests instead of trees. That's what I've got, Adam. It's an interesting idea, in part because I think we're beginning to see the rise of a new millennial artist, uh, and they seem, at least on the music side, totally devoted to albums. If you think about the albums that are being released that are anticipated. I think Kendrick Lamar, for instance, or Frank sure. Ocean, the, right. the, these two albums were designed to be listened to as pieces. Same way. I mean, uh, black Messiah that, um, uh, that D'Angelo put out uh, a sure. year and a half ago. I mean, these were all, uh, uh, very specifically designed to play, to have themes that wove in and out of them. And, um, and they all had some anticipation behind them. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and, and, and no, by no means do I happen to think that like Bon Iver is the vanguard here. I just, it's kind of how I've encountered it for the day. Right. And, so. but that, but I think you're right to look at the, the track listing as an intentional protest uh, yeah. against uh, the singlefication of, of our lives. Um, and I think, I think it speaks to uh, the artist's also reclaiming some of uh, their vision and saying, uh, no, I want this to be listened all the way through. I actually don't want this to be bite-sized. All right, Matt, that about wraps it up for this episode, but we're not quite done yet. 
We still need homework for our next episode when our guest will be Steve Braga. Steve is a professor of politics at Washington and Lee University and is here to bring a bit of his own Episcopal and academic lens into our own election season frenzy. And here he is by Movie Magic to give us our homework. Hi, this is Steve Braga. I'm a professor at Washington and Lee University, and I'm looking forward to discussing Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? on our next episode of Technicolor Jesus. Thanks, Steve. Uh, this will be the first Coen Brothers movie that we've done on this podcast, which is seems, long, seems overdue. long yeah. overdue. Yeah, for, for two people who who probably have, you know, half an hour each that they could go on right now about the Coen Brothers oeuvre. Oeuvre. I said it. <laughs> I said it. Yeah, I used it. Uh, corpus, if you'd like. Uh, I prefer I prefer corpus. You do? Okay. Yeah. The body. Well, the, body the way of you work. S- yeah, I mean if you're going to say it I prefer corpus. <laughs> but you don't like my French oeuvre? I don't. No, I'm cutting it. It's all going on the floor, man. I'm uh, cutting it all out. No, don't cut that out. My 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 pronunciation of oeuvre is perfect. Um yeah, so we'll be looking at Oh Brother War Out Thou, which is uh, uh, actually a hilarious and I think prescient movie. So Thanks for listening, folks. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes. And if you like it, leave us a rating, leave us a review, tell a friend, write it in your hearts, uh, write it in the stars, do whatever you like. Every little bit helps others find the show. Thanks so much, Adam. Thanks, Matt.